Um, so I hope to instill some love for it uh, in, in you as well. So it's not an uncommon thing for us, right, to think about learning from the past. That's a pretty intuitive thing. Uh, most of us, I think, would say, yeah, I, I think there could be something to be said from learning from the past. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's always easy or that we always learn from our mistakes. Perfect example of this, just earlier this week, uh, one of my kids, uh, we were cleaning the house. I turn around for just a second, and I turn back around, and there's a mouthful of dirt uh, in this kid's mouth. And they're retching, and oh, this is so gross. Why is there dirt? It was a house plant, you know. And I was like, oh, no, no, we don't eat dirt. No, no, no. And then I'm cleaning out, you know, their mouth and throwing away. And literally, in the time it took me to go and and clean up, I turn around, and they're eating dirt again, even though they just gagged and it was so, so gross and things. So my son, in that instance, was struggling to learn from his mistakes. He's struggling to learn from the past. And, right, it's important to learn from past mistakes. Think of some other common scenarios where we think about learning from the past. I like history uh, a lot. You probably, in your history classes in school, you know, you, you're told uh, about kings and prime ministers and different people and usually about mistakes that they've made, right? And there's usually a lesson there of, you know, let's not make this mistake again uh, as a nation or don't make those individual mistakes uh, that that person made. But this common sense notion of learning from the past, we often kind of just stop there, don't we? We stop at what not to do, uh, right? When, whenever we even say that common phrase, hindsight is twenty we're usually talking about the negative, what not to do. But I fear that if, if we just stop at looking at the past and saying what not to do, then what do, what do we do, right? What should we actually do? And it's only until we understand what we should do, what the standard is, that we really can know what not to do. And that's exactly what Psalm 95 does for us and what we'll see this evening. So those priorities of what not to do and then what to do are actually completely flipped uh, in this psalm, as we just read. Uh, We actually start with this beautiful picture of worship of God, who God is, why we should worship him, and then this very, if you were listening, a very stark, very harsh contrast and a warning uh, looking at the past. In this case, the history of Israel and what not to do. So we're kind of shown this picture of what worship looks like, and then this picture of what the opposite of that worship looks like. In this case, uh, it, 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 the opposite of that is how Israel acted in the desert. So I'm just going to read Psalm 95 one more time, just so it's really fresh in our mind. It's a really short psalm, so I'll read it, uh, and, then, and then we'll dive in. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. 
Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So I think the, the main point of this psalm, and so the main point of the sermon, is this, for, for you note takers out there. The main point of the sermon is this, worship God as king and creator and do not harden your hearts. Worship God as king and creator and do not harden your heart. And we're going to break that down into two pretty simple points. Point number one, worship your king and creator. And that's kind of what we see in verses one through seven. So worship your king and creator. And then point number two, learn from the past and do not harden your heart. Learn from the past and do not harden your heart. And that's verses seven through 11. Okay, so point number one, worship your king and creator. So just as a way of introduction uh, to this psalm, uh, you'll notice that a lot of psalms, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of us in here have read the Bible quite a bit, a lot of psalms, they'll start with uh, uh, what we call a superscription, right? The, those little letters above the, the first verse. Uh, this psalm doesn't have that. Uh, the superscriptions are God's inspired word. If you ever wondered about that, they are. They, they are they are just God's word as much as anything else, even though they don't have a verse. But they tell us a lot about Psalms, right? They tell us uh, who wrote them. They tell us sometimes the occasion, even the tune of music that they're supposed to be sung to. But here, we're kind of just thrust right in. Um, we're not given any of these superscriptions, but we actually do know who wrote Psalm 95 uh, because the author of Hebrews later on Uh, in the New Testament, tells us that David wrote Psalm 95. And we're actually going to look at Hebrews a little bit later uh, because he basically applies this psalm for us. Um, So if I say David, and you're like, this doesn't say David, that's why. Because, right, God's word is God's word. And so if the New Testament says David wrote it, we're going to trust that that David wrote it. Okay, so the theology of the psalm here is pretty straightforward, right? It's nothing like really difficult to grasp or understand. There's not a lot of weird interpretive challenges to the psalm. Um, It's a pretty straightforward call for God's people to worship God and worship him on the basis of him being their king and him being their creator. Now, of course, we'll get to that second half of the psalm, uh, that is a little bit uh, more tricky, maybe, or, or seems a little bit harsh. Um, but uh, just suffice it to say, this psalm is actually really similar to a lot of other psalms uh, around it in, in its call to worship God as King and Creator. So look at verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. 
So here in the beginning, we have an invitation. It's not just this kind of random thing out in the ether. It's David talking to the people of Israel saying, it's like he's beckoning them with his arms. Come, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Verse 2, that invitation continues. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. David's saying, come on, guys, this is amazing. Let's worship God together. And it's not even just random, let's worship God in, in whatever way. He, he specifies ways. Let us worship, let's sing and be thankful and make a joyful noise. For David, God deserves all of our being in our worship to him. Uh, how, how thankful can we be that we, as Great Vic, just got to fulfill this psalm a little bit in our worship. We got to sing to the rock of our salvation. Be encouraged. We're, we're being a biblical church uh, when we sing uh, praises to the Lord. Okay, starting in verse 3, we see some of the groundings for this worship. So, okay, worship God, that's great. Why do we do these things? It says, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And then verse 4 shows us this really beautiful picture of God's rule. It says, in his, right hand, in his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. In other words, God rules everything, right? It's a, it's a figure of speech. You know, if, if God's here in the depths, and he's at the heights of the mountains. He's everywhere in between. So it's just a way of saying God is in control of everything. His hand is everywhere. It rules everything. He's king over all of it. There's nothing that he is not in control of. And not only is he the king over it, not only does he rule it, he made it in the first place. Verse 5, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So just like verse four, this is a, a, a figure of speech. It's saying, you know, if, if he made the seas and he made the dry land, that, that's what we have, right? He made everything. So God is not just the, just the king of the universe. He's also the creator of the universe. And for David, this is the grounds of our worship of God. He even says, worship and kneel before the Lord as our maker. I wonder how much we often trivialize this, this kind of aspect of the gospel, of God being the creator and ruler of all things. Think about, uh, think about the book of Proverbs. What is, so in the book of Proverbs, right, you have the, the wise man and you have the fool What's kind of the chief sin of the fool throughout the book of Proverbs? It's, it's living a life like God isn't in control of the world. It's living a life as if he's an atheist, right? Proverbs 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. When, when we pause and, and contemplate that for a moment, um, there's just, there's vast implications to God being our creator far more than Genesis 1 and 2. It's not anything less than Genesis 1 and 2. It's more than that. God, God, just didn't, God didn't create and then he's just done. God is the creator. He is the ruler of the world. 
there's only two categories of things or beings, you could say. There's the creator and there's that which is created. That's it. There's the creator and there's his creature. Either you're talking about God or you're talking about something that God created. Think, of, think about what the implications for this for, goodness, our, our dependence on God. It's hard to, to overstate that God's creation of the world, his creation and rule over it, it, it's the foundation of the gospel that we proclaim here. So when you read a psalm like Psalm 95 and it talks about God's creation, there's all kinds of psalms like this, don't just gloss over that and think, oh, that's a normal, yeah, yeah. Well, that is so important. Think about, think about the beginning of the Nicene Creed. What, is it, what does it start with? I believe in God the Father Almighty. So God the Father. And then what's the first thing that we confess about God? Maker of heaven and earth. Of all things. Visible and invisible. It's when we lose sight of God as creator and ruler. We'll see later in our psalm. It's when we lose sight of God as creator and ruler, that our hearts are hardened and our hearts go astray. Why is that? Because if God isn't the creator and ruler of your life, who's in charge? I'm in charge. For example, why does David talk about the Lord being king above other gods? We can read a verse like that in that seem a little jarring. Other gods, you know, there's only one God. Um, li- listen to this. I found this really helpful. This is what uh, the, the great reformer John Calvin says in, in uh, talking about this psalm, this verse in this Psalm 95. He says, we are to notice the opposition stated between the God of Israel and all others which man has formed in the exercise of unlicensed imagination. The psalmist aims at denouncing the vain delusions of men who have framed gods after their own foolish devices. So if we do not worship the true creator God, we'll end up creating false gods and worshiping those false gods, not in God's image, but in our own image. What are some false gods that that we're tempted to create? Is it status? Maybe we're prone to throw a coworker under the bus because it makes us look good to our boss. Is it power? We we secretly enjoy when those that we don't really like kind of get what's coming to them and and we're put up on the pedestal a little bit more. Things go our way. Is it comfort? Is it companionship? Oh, if I, if I was just married, oh, things would be better. Or, oh, I'm married, but if my spouse would just love me the way that I want to be loved, then things would be better. Friends, these are idols. They're false gods. And God 
as this psalm says, is above and over all of these things. The, the remedy to our sidelining God, according to David in this psalm, is to worship him rightly as creator and ruler. But even on the other side of that, maybe you hear that and you say, okay, God's creator and ruler, that's great, but I don't know if I'm struggling necessarily with idolatry. Maybe, not, maybe idolatry is not what you're struggling with. Maybe you are in a state of suffering. Maybe you're going through a hard thing. Make no mistake, <laughs> there are struggles and hardships in life. We lose jobs. We lose loved ones. We grow weary in old age and deal with sickness. We have jobs that are stressful and kids that are stressful and church and all these other things, and we could just feel, oh, like, what am I doing? The amazing thing about God being creator and king is that it doesn't just apply to our sin, it also applies to our suffering. Christian, if the world is pressing in on you with trials and struggles, David tells us the first place to turn, bow down before your maker. The Lord knows your situation he, his hand is in the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his. If you don't believe me, look at verse seven. Look at verse seven, how incredible this is. So the, the same God who we bow down to as maker, who we worship as ruler, what else is he? He's our shepherd. Verse seven says, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Do you hear that? The sheep of his what? His hand. Think about what else his hand does in this psalm. In his hand are the depths of the earth, right? The sea is his, and his hands formed the dry land. Christian, the same hands that rule from the depths of the earth to the heights of the mountains are the same hands that hold his sheep. The same hands that made the sea and the dry land tenderly and lovingly care for those who are his. What a comfort. If you're struggling with the pressures of life, be comforted that the same hands that made the universe are the same hands that hold you. It's just amazing truth. So, worship your king and creator. Point number two, learn from the past and do not harden your heart. Learn from the past and do not harden your heart. So like I mentioned earlier, up, up to this point, uh, this is beautiful truth, but it's not, uh, it's not hard to grasp. It's not um, weird, we could say. Psalm 95, like I said, it's really similar to a lot of the psalms uh, surrounding it. Psalm 93, Psalm 97, Psalm 99. These all have really similar themes. 
What makes this psalm unique, though, is that it ends on this seemingly sour note, right? It ends with a warning. Listen to the end of Psalm 95 compared with some of those other psalms that that surround it. So Psalm 97, it ends by saying, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 95, near the end it says, For 40 years I loathed that generation. Psalm 99, how does it end? Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Psalm 95 ends, the last thing it says is, Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So obviously something else is going on here. Uh, And that's purposeful. Psalm 95 is supposed to be a really stark contrast. It's, it's meant to kind of wake us up and, and be a reminder. David is trying to kind of shake us and grab our attention on purpose. We're supposed to read it and say, wow, that end is really harsh. So the first section shows us what it's like to worship God, and the second section shows us what it's like to reject God. So, so what's the opposite of singing praises to God and worshiping him as creator and ruler of all things? The opposite is acting like Israel acted when they were wandering in the wilderness. So what is that? What, what's going on there? Just so, so just as a way of reminder, what's, what's going on when he says, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah? So... This psalm is pointing back to the history of Israel during the Exodus, right? So, uh, right, Egypt or uh, Israel is in slavery in Egypt. They see all these incredible, incredible things uh, in the Lord's deliverance, right? The the plagues, the Passover as a part of that, uh, the parting of the Red Sea. They're given food in the form of manna. Uh, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire uh, lead their path. So uh, God gives them the law. Like all kinds of just really incredible things happen to them in front of their eyes. Like physical, real things. Parting of the Red Sea, plagues, Egyptians dying. And then after all of this, a whole generation rejected God. They didn't put their faith in God. When the the text mentions the day at Massa, we're supposed to think of that that story, that incredible scene of Israel complaining about their lack of water, Moses striking the rock and it burst with water. Remember, what does God say? He says, because of your disobedience, Israel, that that generation would, would not see the promised land. For 40 years, they would wander and they would die. So, so that's what we're supposed to have in mind here. So as you're reading the second half of this psalm, uh, think about Israel seeing God's signs, seeing them manifest in front of them, and then still just rejecting God. So again, what does David say is the opposite of worshiping God as he ought to be worshiped? It's being like that. It's being like that. It's seeing God's work in front of you and then saying, no, no, God, still don't trust you. I don't think that you can provide for me. You're definitely not going to take care of me. That's the opposite of worship of God. It's a lack 
of faith. It's a lack of faith in God. But before we throw Israel under the bus uh, so too hard, which we can often be prone to do, remember why this is in Psalm 95. It's because the people of God are prone to this temptation. We as God's people are prone to see his works in front of us. Think about, uh, again, we were just worshiping God, but this is also a form of seeing God's work in front of us. Look around. These are all people saved by God. We're seeing manifestly God's work in the Holy Spirit around us in saving people. And yet, we could still struggle. We could still struggle with with rejecting God and, and, and rejecting his rule. Notice that verse 10 of Psalm 95, it goes to the heart. He says, they went astray in their what? in their hearts. He doesn't just focus on outward actions. He's worried about their hearts. When these hardships come, Psalm 95 is here to shake us awake and say, be careful. Be careful. Do not be like this. That's that learn from the past. It's saying, don't be like Israel who rejected God in the wilderness. Do not be like that. No, he is your shepherd. You're the sheep of his hand. He cares for his people. That generation in Israel, they, they didn't get that. And so we need to learn from their mistakes. And if you're hearing this and you're thinking, okay, Jared, like that's great, decent principle, baby, but that's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. I love this. This is incredible. There is a, just the, the most blatant, obvious New Testament application of this exact passage in the book of Hebrews to the New Testament people of God, to the church. So we, we might see something like the wandering of Israel in the wilderness and say, oh, that, that, there's no way that could apply to us. But... Keep, keep your place in Psalm 95, but, but turn with me, just because I think it'd be helpful. We'll read just a little bit. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. So Hebrews chapter 3. So Hebrews actually quotes Psalm 95. So it doesn't just refer to Israel's wandering broadly. It actually quotes Psalm 95. So Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... And then he quotes Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, and so on and so on. On to verse 11. That's, that's a whole quote of Psalm 95. Then look at verse 12. What's his, what's his interpretation of this? What is the Holy Spirit, through the author of Hebrews, what is his commentary on Psalm 95? Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we know if we have come to share in, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Look just a little bit past that at chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2 of Hebrews. For good news came to us, 
that is Christians, just as to them, that is Israel, in the desert. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Wow. So let's not skip over this too quickly. The example that Hebrews gives is it's stark and sobering. It's a strong warning. They're saying Israel saw God's work in the Exodus and their salvation. Don't be like them. Have faith. Are you here today and you are like Israel in the wilderness? Are, are you just going through the motions of the Christian life? Like Israel, ha- have you seen the things of God even today, as we're saying? Are you seeing the things of God around you? And do you still not have genuine faith? Listen to God's word this morning. Listen to this warning in Hebrews. Listen to this warning in Psalm 95. Don't harden your heart. Psalm 95 is in the Bible. Hebrews 3 is in the Bible because God knows this happens all the time. People go through the motions of the Christian life and they don't have genuine faith. This is so common. Just this past week, um, we were having some car trouble and so... Uh, we drove out uh, to drop this car back off that we were borrowing uh, in Banbridge. And the, the woman that was helping us um, uh, with the car, just, in a, just such a sweet lady, her name was Helen, really hospitable. She had us in for tea, and we were just talking and, and things. And Helen got saved later in life uh, to, to a lot of people. She got saved in her 40s. And Helen was telling me her story and how She grew up in a nominally Christian home, thought she was a Christian, and all these things. It wasn't until she was in her 40s that she realized, my faith isn't genuine. And she became a believer, praise the Lord. And I think, I can think of, and I'm sure you guys can think of, a lot of people with similar stories, right? I grew up in a Christian home, I thought I was a believer, then I I was living a life that just didn't kind of comport with that, and, and, and I just realized I wasn't a genuine Christian. Again, that's why Psalm 95 is in the Bible. That's why Hebrews 3 is in the Bible, because this happens all the time. So don't harden your heart. Don't, don't be like that. Don't go through the motions of the Christian life without it being genuine. This is one of the beautiful things about being members at a local church, covenanted with each other. It's our responsibility as members of Great Victoria Street Baptist Church to faithfully warn and rebuke and encourage one another in this way. That's the command in in Hebrews 3, right? It's not just kind of leaving it at that, Hebrews 3. It, It says, so exhort one another every day, as long as it's today, that that none of you would have an evil and unbelieving heart. Right? It's assuming that this is happening in the context of a community of people loving one another, serving one another, and helping one another. It's our responsibility as covenanted members to make sure that our faiths are genuine. So a- after all this, you might be 
be hearing this and you might think, Jared, okay, (laughs) that's a lot of law and not a lot of gospel. But if we look closely, that's not the case at all. Remember earlier when I spoke about how uh, the beautiful thing in this this psalm is, is the pattern that it shows us. It's not just a pattern of don't do this, right? It's not just, it doesn't just end at don't do this. It's a call to believe. It's a call to believe and worship God as king and creator and the rock of our salvation. The answer to unbelief is not complicated. The answer to unbelief is belief. The answer to hardening our heart is simply faith. It's not muster up all the good deeds that you can. It's not just be a better person or even just make sure your Christian life is feeling really good right now. The answer is faith. Just one more passage in Hebrews that I think sums this up well. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. So again, context this this is after the author of hebrews has given this basically a sermon on psalm 95 and this is kind of how he concludes it he says since then we have a we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the answer to not falling away and unbelief and being like Israel is Christ. In contrast to the disobedience of the sons of Israel, Jesus showed himself as perfectly obedient, didn't he? When Israel went through desert trials and failed and had to wander 40 years in the desert, Jesus was tempted in the desert, wasn't he? But he was righteous. In fact, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of what it means to worship God, like we see in Psalm 95, as creator and king. In the desert, when the devil says, you know, look at all these things, Jesus. I'll I'll give you these things to rule. What What does Jesus answer to him? It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus knew the God of Psalm 95. Jesus is the God of Psalm 95. Jesus knew in his hand, are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. That's who Jesus is. He is the creator and king, and where we fail, he succeeds. Again, being a Christian is not about mustering up more of ourselves and pulling us ourselves up. It's about the eternal son of God who came down from heaven and lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserve 
so that we might live. If you're here this evening and you haven't put your faith in Christ, listen to these words. Listen to the words of Psalm 95. We want you to to walk out of here even this evening praising God as the rock of your salvation too. Learning from the mistakes of the past is a good thing. And having an example of how to worship God as king and creator is a beautiful thing. So remember, we we don't need to worry. We don't need to harden our hearts because the same king that rules all things, the same creator who formed all things by his hand, that's the same king and creator whose hand holds us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do worship you. We hope to be a people of Psalm 95, that we would worship you as the rock of our salvation. Thank you for your creation. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for your rule over the world. And I pray that we would just go throughout this week just thinking of just the beauty and wonder of living as people who are the people of him who created and rules the world. We pray this in your son's name, amen. All right, and as, as David says, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So as the musicians begin to play, let's stand and worship our creator and king by singing all creatures of our God and king.
Be sure to stick around for some tea and refreshments at the back, 20s and 30s as well, uh, in the creche room. Is that right? All right, hear this benediction now. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in his peace.